afternoon, everyone. I'm Louisa Graham, Chief Executive of the Walkley Foundation. And it's my pleasure to welcome you all here as we celebrate Australian journalism. The Walkleys recognise the very best in Australian journalism. And last week we announced the general and photo finalists, and today we announced the finalists in the business category. The winners will be revealed at the gala dinner, which will take place in Brisbane on Thursday, the 22nd of November, and Sky, again, will be our broadcast partner for that event. Well, business journalism is far from a niche area of our media. These are the stories that affect the lives of everyday Australians, and it's so essential to our nation. In recent years, this category has been one of the Walkley's strongest, with brilliant, forensic, fair and fearless reporting. So expect nothing less from today's finalists as we announce them. We have some incredibly strong business reporters and they have broken stories that we're still feeling reverberations from today. From investigations that have led to the Financial Services and Banking Royal Commission, abolition of ATM fees by the big four banks, exposing money laundering and practices at franchises such as Domino's and 7-Eleven. I want to thank our Walkley Award business partner, category supporters, ING, and particularly CEO Uday Serene and former journalist David Breen, who heads up corporate affairs. Supporting the Walkleys sends a strong message that journalism is fundamental to a functioning democracy. I want to also thank our judges in this category, Sally Payton from AFR, Paul Coggan, Business Insider, and Alyssa McDonnell from Bloomberg. Judging, for any of those who have undertaken it before, is an enormous undertaking. And it's what really gives the Walkleys their special cachet. If you win a Walkley, you've competed with and been judged by the best of your peers right across the industry. And that's no mean feat. I'd also like to acknowledge the Walkley Foundation directors in the room. We have Chair Quentin Dempster, Michael Yander and Marcus Strom. Now to hand over to a man that needs little introduction, Ross Greenwood, who's the business and finance editor from the Nine Network, who's here to interview our very special guest speaker today, Guy DeBell, Deputy Governor of the Reserve Bank. Now, I should make just some small point about what we'll do today. Guy, of course, is here. It's a good thing to have him in front of a bunch of journalists, as you'll be well aware, because the Reserve Bank, as a practice, does not do press conferences. Uh, so this is a great opportunity and also the fact that I am highly conscious that I have many of my highly credentialed peers in the audience. We're going to give you plenty of time for your own questions to guide to Bell. So just make certain you've got those. I don't want it to be a media conference, it's not a scrum and by the way, if you do ask a question, you won't get a string of questions, you get one. Okay? Fantastic, because we have a lot of people in the room. Guy, I'll start with mine, if that's okay. Just on that... Do I get to say a few words first? Uh, you, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologise. And the, and the uh, order of events is that Guy, before we kick off on the whole thing, has got a few words to say. We'll start with him. Okay. <laughs> so thanks very much for the invitation to be here. It's a privilege to speak here in front of a group of financial journalists such as yourselves. Financial media is obviously very important to the Reserve Bank and plays a critical role in helping us communicate our message to the public. So today what I'd like to talk about briefly is just some of the challenges that uncertainty causes journalists as well as us as policymakers. And I'm going to draw on Charles Mansky, Nate Silver and Philip Tetlock and repeat the warning of Mansky, which is beware the lure of incredible certitude. So what does Mansky mean by bewaring the lure of incredible certitude? He means try to avoid presenting point predictions and estimates 
without conveying any sense of the uncertainty around them. Now that's hard because, as Mansky notes, the public, impatient for solutions to its pressing concerns, rewards those who offer simple analyses leading to unequivocal policy recommendations. So should you be giving the people what they want? Can they handle the truth? Or in this case, can they handle the fact that we really don't know the truth? Or to channel Mulder and Scully, the truth is out there, but its whereabouts are unknown. <laughs> so we're always making decisions under uncertainty. Uncertainty is unavoidable. Sometimes the uncertainty isn't that important and we can ignore it. But a lot of the time, and particularly in the financial space, it is important and we can't ignore it. So what do we do? We estimate. Philip Tetlock put out this great book a couple of years ago called Super Forecasting. And he says that estimating is what you do when you don't know. So given we're in a world of probabilistic statements, how do we assess them? How do we hold those who make those statements to account? So first of all, I think it's really important, I think, that probabilistic statements should be falsifiable and they should be verifiable. They need a time frame and they need some numbers. They should avoid phrases like, X has a significant chance of happening, or there is a possibility of X happening. Significant and possible can mean anything. So please, I ask you, pin people down, get them to commit. So if instead we had a statement such as, X has a one in three chance of happening in the next two years, we can work out that that is less likely to occur than something has a 50-50 chance of happening. So what happens if that event actually then does happen? How do you tell which of those two people are actually more accurate? Well, unfortunately, that's hard to assess. And in the end, track records built up over time can help you sort out luck from skill. So time frames help here too. So I'd ask you beware the I told you so forecaster. So some people can put a prediction out there without an expiry date and many years down the track when the event actually happens, then I told you so. So if you pick the one in the hundred event that no one saw coming, was the forecaster really good or were they just the monkey that wrote Hamlet? So closely related to I told you so is just wait, it's still coming. So Philip Tetlock highlights an example from 2012, which some of you may be aware of. A bunch of luminaries in the US wrote a petition that quantitative easing in the US would generate high inflation, I think some of them even said hyperinflation, and currency debasement. So here we are, six years down the track. Inflation in the US is struggling to stay above 2% and the US dollar is actually a little bit higher than it was when they put out that statement. Now, they could of course say it's still coming, but without a time limit on the prediction, they might one day claim to be right. But to be a useful prediction, it needs some time frame and some probability of occurrence. And so the quintessential Australian example of this, as quintessential example of everything in Australia, is probably a housing market crash. Been foretold for at least the last three decades, and maybe one day it's here. But there will be any number of I told you so's around that one, I'm sure. Ideally, the probability of something occurring gets updated through time as new information comes to hand. So you can say whether it's getting more or less likely, rather than just there's some chance of it happening. So that's the Bayesian approach that underpins Nate Silver and his 538 team's approach to prediction, which he described in his book, The Signal and the Noise. So continually update your assessment of likely outcomes as new information comes in. So journalists, as well as policymakers, need to filter and clarify the information. Filtering all the predictions out there is hard. Clarifying what they actually mean is hard. But that's actually, I presume, some of the reasons why you're actually in journalism in the first place is to exactly that. So how do you assess the validity of the claims? Should you assess them or should you just report them? 
How much input should you bring to bear on the statements that people are making? One thing to always bear in mind is what is the motivation of those making the claims? Are they rewarded by the headline or the click? Are you rewarded by the headline or the click? Or are you reporting the more likely and more boring outcome? So to give an example, uh, to make this concrete, often the most accurate statement about why the stock market rose today is that it occurred for any one of a hundred different reasons, or actually more than likely for a combination of all of those a hundred different reasons. Or my favourite explanation is mostly because there were more buyers than sellers. <laughs> so that's not quite as punchy as the market rose today because Carlton won the premiership, admittedly an extremely <laughs> unlikely statement, but <laughs> one some of us are at least still hopeful. All that said, people need to be informed of the tail outcomes, but not bombarded with them. So I know that bad news sells, but a continual reporting of possible tail events conveys the sense that these events are much more likely than they really are. So downside risks are easy to articulate, particularly if they're bad, even if they're a very low probability. So I'm not arguing that we should all be Pollyannas, but at the same time, we seem to have a surplus of Cassandras around at the moment. In fact, there are so many black swans identified each day that we may as well all well be living in Perth. So I'll finish using the employment numbers as an example of the challenges of reporting on economic data accurately. So each month, the point estimates for what happened to employment are dutifully reported, but that's what they are, point estimates, and particularly estimates. The ABS provides a band of uncertainty around those estimates, which is plus or minus 30,000. That's larger than the actual movement month to month most of the time. That's not such a large forecast error in terms of the level of employment, 10 million or so, but it is large in terms of the monthly changes. So do you as journalists report the full range of this uncertainty? So I realise that's hard, and on this Mansky who I referred to earlier cites LBJ, which says, ranges are for cattle, give me a number. So I realise that's what you're up against. So what is the signal versus the noise in each monthly release? That's when you need to filter and clarify. Maybe use the trend, though that's sometimes slow to pick turning points, just like a lot of forecasters are slow to pick turning points. You can bring other information to bear. Cross-validate, consistency check. So it is definitely a challenge for business journalists to convey the uncertainty to the public, just as it is a challenge for us policymakers to make decisions about under-uncertainty. But that's the challenge, and it's unfortunately a challenge that neither of us can ignore. So with that, now I'm ready to take some questions. Right, very good. <laughs> right. I'll start by picking you up out of those introductory words and ask the question about the role of the Reserve Bank when it comes to information. Because the information put out by the Reserve Bank now would certainly almost give an indication that it's some form of if not publisher, then certainly giving ongoing commentary from the speeches, from the bulletins, from all of that type of thing. So is the role of the Reserve Bank in that to give guidance, just to simply give its interpretation, or to really give that definitive view of where markets and or the economy is heading into the future? I mean, we use our communication to inform people about how we see things, but we're by no means the oracle of all truth. So, But it's important, I think, to get our views out there and communicate them. And I think it's also important to get them out there in the way that we would like to present them. How you choose to report them is entirely up to you, of course, but it's actually useful to try and get them out there. Now, the interesting question for us is we've got, just as you do, multiple audiences. And the question is, how do you pitch the message to be received by people with different levels of understanding? And that's always a challenge that we face. Are we 
communicating to financial markets, to the general public, you know, to the readers or listeners or viewers of your audiences. And, and so that's always a challenge. That, and we've, I suppose, evolved on that over the years. We've tried to find different ways of trying to make some of the stuff a little more accessible and readable than it has been historically, although there's probably still more room to be done there. But is it the role of the Reserve Bank also to try and change behaviour in the community if you see excesses coming? And the property market would be one classic example. Or where, say, for example, an encouragement by the former Reserve Bank Governor calling for the animal spirits of business to actually pick themselves up. Is this trying to prod the economy in certain ways according to the, the views you might have about the way in which it is performing now? I mean, on the former, we can certainly, you know, we can identify risks as we perceive them. It's still in the end up to people to, as how they want to take that information. And also in the end, we've only got so many uh, levers at our disposal, mostly just one most of the time, which has influence on any number of things. So I suppose it's trying to at least get people to provide some framework for them to think about what we're doing, understand what we're doing. In the end, it's ultimately up to them, be they households or businesses or whatever, as to how they want to take that information. But I think one of our roles is to put out the information to give at least people some understanding as to how we see things, because how we react to how we see things is clearly going to affect them. It's useful for them to have some understanding as to what we're actually on about. Because your charter says that you are, you know, sort of there to try and create stability in the economy. So surely in order to create stability, the words that you put out there, because the words are important here, to, to make certain that there is that level of stability, that excess or indeed even underperformance in the economy is, is basically noted and perhaps responded to by the parts of the economy that might be susceptible to them. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we're, so we're trying to at least provide an informed assessment. As you said, we're trying to achieve that level of stability in the economy across... I mean, we're trying to achieve full employment as well as stability. So, but we're trying to achieve that stability to help people make those decisions which might help engender that stability. But the other point, which coming up to what I was saying in my remarks earlier, is we've also got to point out to people that there are uncertainties out there which are, as I said, unavoidable and that they should be aware of them in their decision-making, be they a household or a business. Okay, you mentioned the one lever you have, and the reason why I'm sort of interested in the words uh, and the interpretation of the words is because you clearly haven't pushed or pulled that lever for a record period of time. So there's a second question about this. Given you have a lever that you right now are, for whatever reason, not using, and at the same time you've got commercial banks moving interest rates, does it mean the Reserve Bank has lost control of monetary policy in this country? No, it's a very short answer to that question. So we take all of that information into account. I mean, a couple of points of perspective. So the recent rises by some of the, not all of the commercial banks was of the order of 10 or 12 basis points. So we tend to move our policy rate by 25, which is a bit larger. If you go back over the last 10 years, let alone a longer period of time, the main thing which has caused borrowing rates or, or deposit rates for that matter in this country to go up and down is what we do with the cash rate. It's not the only thing. And so we take that into account as that part of the transmission mechanism changes, just as we take into account any other change in the transmission mechanism. So the effect of the exchange rate on the economy has changed through time. We have to take that into account. The movement between our policy rate and lending rates is a little more obvious to people, and so you can see that change. But as we've said on any number of times over the past 10 years, one of the reasons why the cash rate is where it is today, i.e. low, is we're cognizant of the fact that the gap between our, the cash rate and lending rates is wider than it was 10, 15 years ago. So that's just one of the moving parts that we always have to take into account. But 
if and when we do move the cash rate, still remain pretty confident that we'll still have that sort of effect on lending rates that we've had historically. And given the fact that the cash rate has been what was described at one period of time, I don't think it's described at that point now, as emergency low rates of interest here in Australia, a lot of people would wonder whether by not raising interest rates you are not building some insurance if, say, for example, there is a black swan experience or a, a global economic downturn down the track that really ultimately you don't have interest rates at the levels of the United States, notwithstanding strong economic growth in Australia, and that maybe you don't have the ability to, to respond in an aggressive way to help the Australian economy in the event of a downturn. Every month we think about whether the setting of monetary policy is appropriate. The fact that we haven't changed it for the last couple of years is because we actually think it is appropriate. And, you know, we've got closer, we've moved towards achieving the objectives that we're supposed to be achieving, which is somewhere around full employment. You know, it came down to five last week. Inflation's a bit above two, which is pretty consistent with inflation rate of between two and three percent. So one of the reasons why we haven't moved is we've been moving the objectives that we're supposed to be trying to achieve with economies being moving towards them. I suppose the other point is, as we've noted on a number of times, there is some value in being a source of stability in the economy and, and predictability. But if the circumstances warrant, then we would certainly adjust as necessary. But it's not about keeping something in the back pocket or something for some future event. We do what's you know, the best way to handle something bad which comes along in the future is to be as strong as you are now. And so we're trying to make sure that the economy is in as good a shape as it can be. That's what we try and do all the time. We don't hold back or, or preempt stuff just to keep some gunpowder in the locker, sorry. As I said, the best way to approach anything which might come down the track is to be as strong a position as you possibly can be today, which is, again, consistent with trying to achieve the objectives we've been given. Just one thing you mentioned earlier on is about full employment in Australia. The unemployment rate last week came down to 5%. A school of thought in Australia, and I think it's probably a reasonable school of thought, that there is a, an excess of supply of labour still coming into the marketplace, so older Australians families struggling with mortgages and so often there can be women working more hours if they can find the hours or men. or men for that matter as well but increasingly in some families it is women going back into the workforce that might have otherwise not been there but just what I'm wondering is whether you believe that Australia right now with five percent employment is even close to full employment. So I gave a speech on this last week which actually you're talking about the opportunity for people to ask questions there was I don't know if there were any journalists in the room, but if there were, no one actually asked me a question and there was opportunity for that at the end. But I did actually talk about the state of the labour market. That was the title of the talk. And so we have an open mind on the question of what actually constitutes full employment because it's one of those concepts around which there is a bit of uncertainty, to go back to what I was saying earlier. And it's a question as how we see you know, things, how wages evolve over the period ahead, how prices evolve. But I talked a bit about underemployment, which picks up on some of the stuff you were talking about, and it's come down with the unemployment rate, but it's still up there a bit. So, yep, we certainly have an um, open mind about, how, about what exactly constitutes full employment. And one of the things I said last week is that if you look at the experience of other countries, admittedly different to ours, over the last few years or so, as they've got close to what they had previously thought was full employment, these sort of wage and price pressures haven't really started to emerge and ended up able to achieve unemployment rates much lower than they thought they would have been able to historically. I mean, the US is a particularly good example of that at the moment. So we approach this with an open mind, not with a sort of dogmatic mind and bring any number of pieces, what I was talking about earlier as well. We have to just look at it 
cut this any number of ways to see whether everything's telling a consistent story rather than come to a definitive conclusion about just one piece of data. But while you are not coming to that definitive conclusion, if something adverse does occur, a shock to the markets, whatever it might be, a shock to the economy, is one of the criticisms potentially of the Reserve Bank that it has not anticipated these types of events in advance, that they haven't moved settings in advance to try and create the insurance policy that should perhaps be there in some people's mind. I know that you're dealing with what's in front of you, but the question is, is it always a, a risk-averse strategy or setting that the Reserve Bank takes? No, I don't think so. I mean, I said our main goal is to create expectation, you know, make the economy as strong as it possibly be for whatever's coming down the pipe. But also to your point, so there are any number of things which could go wrong, or right, for that matter, in the economy. And to some extent, we have to set policy for the most likely outcome, not the average of all possible outcomes. You know, there are any number of things which could come, come down the pipe. We have to make some assessment as to whether they're likely, how likely they are, and what the impact would be. But I can think of any number of bad events, and we wouldn't, you know, which have a particularly catastrophic outcome. As I said, it's always often easier to think about the bad things than, than everything just turns out to be a bit better than you thought. So we can't make policy settings on the basis of a whole bunch of low probability, high impact events. We've got to actually make an assessment on what we think is the most likely course of the economy. And if it turns out that one of those events does actually materialise, be prepared to move quickly in response to that. So you need to be open-minded in making that change in assessment quickly, but also at the same time don't jump at shadows. So it's really making an assessment based, as I said, on the most likely outcome or the modal outcome, to use a statistical term, rather than necessarily average of any number of low probability, high impact events. Okay, now before I just take some of your questions out there, and I will do this very shortly, just to explain this to people, how does a Carlton supporter end up as a Deputy Governor of, of the Reserve Bank? I normally thought they were Canola Sharks fans, mainly that they hired them from, but explain the progress through from university and through into the position you're in now. Oh, well, I'm from Adelaide originally, so that, that's a... That doesn't explain Carlton at all. That, that, no, 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 it does actually. So if you knew your AFL history, or actually to be more precise, VFL history and SANFL history, I'd, Stephen, I'd like to... Stephen Kernahan. So I'd like to point out that this year I've managed to... One of my teams has won the wooden spoon, but my other team, which would be North Adelaide, won the premiership. There was uh, somewhat interesting circumstances as to how they got there, but nevertheless, the premiership cup sits at Prospect Oval. But anyway, back in the day... Before there was this national competition thing, everyone in Adelaide and Perth generally had a VFL team they supported, and I supported Carlton for reasons which I can't remember from before my memory began. So, and then the other thing which you should know is that once you support a team, you can never change. And so I, I left town, everyone left town, and everyone left Adelaide. <laughs> <laughs> Some people went back, some other bicyclists went back, but I left. So what I, I was going to say is I left town before the Crows started. And, and also my family grew up supporting in the port, so my dad and my uncles. And so if I'd given a choice, I would have probably been forced to support port rather than the Crows. And went so to university where? In, in Adelaide. In Adelaide? Yeah, went, uh, did my undergraduate degree in Adelaide and then moved to Canberra. So this is, at that stage, pretty much everyone left Adelaide. So you can see the effects of that still today. Went to work in Canberra for a few years in the Treasury and then went from there to the States, did a PhD at Boston and then worked at the IMF for a couple of years and then I made my way eventually back to Sydney to work at the Reserve Bank. Final one before we do get to your questions, which is coming up right now. You're here in Munster, the room of journalists. Look at how friendly they are. Look, look, they're even well-dressed today, very well-dressed. You don't seem to trust them very much. 
Well, the reason I say that is because I do note that the Federal Reserve and also the Bank of England, after they make an interest rate decision, a monetary policy decision each month, they hold a press conference. Mm. The Reserve Bank is always vigorously fought against holding a press conference. Why is the Reserve Bank vigorously fought against holding a press conference after its uh, monetary policy settings each month? I would say we give opportunities for the media to ask questions as much as any other, possibly more than any other central bank does in terms of we get out and give any number of speeches throughout the course of the month. There's a question and answer session at the end. Media are perfectly welcome to ask questions. Which I, 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 I know generally last, aren't I, discouraged, as you know, from no, asking questions. Uh, not by me or no. not by us. I don't, as I said, at the, the event last week, I was scrambling for questions and there was plenty of opportunity to ask if any of you had been in the audience. So it's a question of... I feel we provide that opportunity, we put plenty of communication out there and it's a question of are we getting our message through appropriately. The media is a very important channel of transmission of that message for sure. But we do, I suppose, provide that opportunity for people to ask questions. Some of you have taken that opportunity in the past. We're also available, we can chat to people. Well, on behalf of my colleagues here, I'd really encourage the Reserve Bank to consider a, a monthly media conference after the uh, monetary policy settings once a month. I think it wouldn't be an unreasonable thing to do. It would bring the Reserve Bank of Australia into step with both the Federal Reserve and also the Bank of England. And of course, benchmarking yourself against your international peers is always an important thing. Indeed. <laughs> we'll take questions now. Uh, who is first? Peter Ryan. Look, uh, Ross, you stole my question. I was going to ask about the press conference, but I think that indeed answered it all. I was going to ask you about social media. These days in journalism, we're all under pressure to get that data out um, as soon as possible. Last, you know, Thursday with the jobs was was pretty typical, and you know, there's pressure on people to get that message out and those results out quickly. Do you have any concerns about the changing landscape of journalism, where there is a rush to be first rather than taking that more considered approach to getting, you know, filling in the details? To some extent, what these awards are about, right? is actually rewarding people who take the time to don't rush out the first story but take the time to write a considered piece and fill in those details. I mean, I'm not sure exactly the criteria for the Walkley Awards, but it's going to probably be somewhere. You know, that would at least be one of them. So it seems to me there's still very much a demand, although you would all know this better, I suppose, but there seems to be a demand for considered, well-thought pieces rather than reactive and partly coming to what I said earlier, it's not entirely clear that you're giving your people what they want, want, sorry, with the reactive stuff rather than... There is some demand for that, but there's also time for something which is a little more well thought out. I would hope in the media, just as in other professions, that you know, the cream of the people who do that still rise to the top and it's just not completely rewarded with clickbait. Um, but, you know, I realise it's a challenging environment that all the media companies today in particular are operating in. But I still think there is very much a demand for that there. I think the issue at the moment is how to monetize that, which unfortunately is always going to be a, a primary consideration. Emma Alberici from the ABC. Guy, there's a lot of catastrophizing around the level of household debt in Australia, given it's, I think, on last measure, the second highest to Switzerland. And there seems to be a real polarisation between those who are writing that it is the single most difficult kind of intractable problem in the economy in terms of your deliberations and those who are perhaps 
having a different reading of what you all are saying in terms of your level of comfort. Can you give us some clarification around where the Reserve Bank is thinking about the level of household debt and what sort of risk it poses to the broader economy? Yeah, thanks. So we um, put out our financial stability review a couple of weeks ago and it's had a fair amount of focus on that particular issue. But to your question, so it's it creates a vulnerability for the economy. The assessment we came to, I think a quick way of summarising what was in the financial stability review a couple of weeks back, is it's not so much a vulnerability to the financial system in that sense, but more a vulnerability to the macro economy. Households pull their heads in because of their high debt levels. That has a negative feedback on the economy as a whole, rather than a whole bunch of households are going to sort of default on their mortgages all at once, say. So... So the levels high, household balance sheets are adjusting to that and that's been going on now for quite some time. So it's more about the quality of the lending as much as the quantity. No one really has a good handle as to how much is too much. So you can make comparisons to other countries. That's what benchmarking, as Ross was talking about earlier, but even then that's hard to come up with anything definitive. So it's as much looking at it and what we're trying, as to how much of a risk this poses and it's really much about the risk, not that there's some level which is just absolutely too high. What impact is that going to have on households in particular, on their behaviour? Did they make appropriate borrowing decisions or not? Or did the banks which are lending to them make appropriate lending decisions or not? So it's very much around that. So to sum it up, I suppose, it's mostly about the resiliency of the household balance sheet, and that's what we spent a fair bit of time talking about a couple of weeks ago. And... I think we're a little more, some degree of comfort that balance sheets are probably more resilient than they were a couple of years back as lending standards have, have tightened up or improved and that households are in a position where they're able to handle what they've got. But it's still a risk factor, which we talk about constantly out there, but much mostly through the macroeconomic lens. Uh, Quentin Dempster from the New Daily. Guy, uh, acknowledging that uh, the Reserve Bank's remit is for inflation, uh, the containment of uh, inflation and full employment and the overall well-being of the Australian economy. Mm. Do you do any uh, what you call your modal outcome work on population growth and climate change and particularly climate change as a risk to the agricultural industries of Australia, population growth as a lever of economic growth but with the collateral damage of uh, an infrastructure backlog and more unlivable congested cities? I suppose we certainly look at population growth because it has a clear macroeconomic impact. I don't think we'd necessarily look at it quite through that last lens of sort of impact on sort of livability. But do we have a look at it? You know, one of the reasons why we've got all this infrastructure going on in here and in Melbourne and, in fact, in a lot of cities in Australia, including even in Adelaide, I was back there last weekend and there's some infrastructure investment going on there too, is very much a function of the population growth. So that has a clear flow through to the macro economy. So yeah, we have to look at, at that question. I mean, we just you know, say so this is what population growth is. These are the sort of consequent, macroeconomic consequences of it. On climate change, interestingly, just on a group of central banks looking at climate change issues, much more through our lens there. So we look at it through the macroeconomic lens. Into, you know, The effect of the drought on the economy is something we, we do today, just as we've done for a long time. And we look at the effect that climate change is having on, say, renewables energy at the moment, which you can actually see in the macroeconomic data. So we look at it again through that lens of its sort of direct impact of people's decisions in responding to the economy. 
But we're also looking at it through, one of a better term, almost a financial stability lens in terms of what impact this may have in terms of things like stranded assets and that sort of thing. So it is, you know, something we just started to move to looking at talking to some of our peers around the world who are probably a little more advanced in this than we've been and just to try and get an understanding of the sort of interaction that climate change may be having on the economy but also on the financial system. Tom Rablick, pre-launch journalist. Uh, uncertainty has four syllables. Crisis makes a better headline. To what extent in your reflections on the media that you made earlier on in your address, did you think about the role of the marketing space in news organisations as opposed to what we see assembled here at the lunch, which is those individuals that are responsible largely for the narrative? I suppose we do think about the medium. We've got Judy Hitchin here, who's our head of communications. One of Judy's main roles is to think about how we get the message that we're putting together, how we get that out there. So, I mentioned social media earlier. I mean, we have... I know we clearly reach peak Facebook because the Reserve Bank's got a Facebook page now, so that very much means we're at peak Facebook. But, yeah, so we're right on the cutting edge of that technology. But it's interesting to, um, to think about... You also mentioned about, you know... So we have a Twitter account for content distribution but not for communication. In part, I think, because we do want to be careful in thinking about how we convey our message and that so we're not just reactive to every thing that comes out there. We try and present a little... try and present a considered view, fairly consistent view, which is not jumping around too much. We have to be careful of avoiding what Ross was talking about earlier, is that we're too resistant to change at the same time. So you've got those competing tensions, absolutely. But I suppose it has been a challenge. If I think back, you know, I started Reserve Bank 20 years ago. You know, back then the medium of communication for our message was pretty much entirely through the print media. That was, I would say, pretty much the full extent of our communication with the media was with the print media. And that just clearly isn't going to work these days in terms of a vehicle for trying to convey the message out there. So we've got to be cognizant of the fact that the media landscape is changing. But I still think, by and large, the way I would put it is that we work on a sort of medium to low frequency in terms of messaging, whereas I know that some of you have got to be much more in a high frequency. I'm not sure that we necessarily have to engage at the high frequency level, but we certainly, as the message, you know, as I said, we're trying to present this sort of I'd say slightly more medium frequency message. We have to think about what are the best ways of trying to ensure that that message gets out there and not just gets out there, but at least as importantly gets understood. I mean, there's no point in us just bombarding the world with all these messages which are just completely lost. We have to make sure that they're actually getting understood. Uh, Matt Burgess from Bloomberg News. Just a quick question, just a follow-up to when you were saying that what constitutes full employment uh, you're open-minded to and also a follow-up to your speech from last week. Just wondering whether the RBA is looking at revising their Nauru target, whether you see that unemployment, the jobless rate has further to fall and whether 4.5% would be a more accurate target for you. I said we're open-minded. That's what, you know, we're always that, along with any number of other things, is one of the things we're always continually looking at, examining and testing. But I'm not going to preempt where we get to on that. As I said, again, we have to operate on a slightly more, coming back to what I said just a second ago, on a slightly more medium-term frequency and not completely react to the most recent piece of news we get. Carrington Clark from the ABC. It looks likely we're going to have a federal election sooner rather than later. What impact would the Labor Party's plans 
changes to negative gearing and capital gains tax have on the housing market, do you estimate at this point? So I'm probably not really going to go there. When we see stuff, you know, policy changes and the like happen, then we obviously have to take account of them rather than, than try and preempt them. So we mostly have to deal with what's in front of us at the time. We can think about particular scenarios. That's obviously always useful to do. But in terms of responding and whatever, we have to sort of deal with what's in front of us. Elise Morgan, also ABC. Going off Quentin's question on population, there's no doubt that the economy has benefited from the high rate of immigration that we've had over the past couple of years. There is an election coming. Immigration is likely to be an issue in that election. Would it be of benefit or not to rein back the rate of immigration that we've got? So again, partly similar answer to the previous question is, I mean, one of the things we've always got to be mindful of, including in our communication, is we you know, try and maintain our independence and be an apolitical institution. I think actually the people of Australia expect that of us. And so I suppose we've got to be careful about what we do and don't, don't comment on for exactly that reason, that we don't want to get pulled into a political process in a way which is going to be detrimental to our both standing in the community and also our future operations. So... I mean, Phil gave a talk a couple months back now, I think, which talked about some of the consequences of immigration. So we can talk about that and, you know, at least try and provide a view, not necessarily you know, a perspective on some of the consequences of that, which people can use to form their own opinions without, as I said, we, I think in terms of things we want to have definite opinions on, there's got to be stuff which is very much within somewhat narrowly defined ballywick and the more we stray off that territory, I think, it runs the risk of undermining the sort of main reason why the institution's here. And I suppose that's the other point is we've got to bear in mind is, you know, it's an institution which has benefit from just being the institution that it is, and we've just got to be careful, but only has a finite degree of capital, I suppose, and so we've got to be very careful of where we expend that capital. So we do try and provide perspectives on some issues, including that one, or provide some analysis around it. And I think we have a role to do that without necessarily drawing conclusions from that and leave that for others to do. Yeah, so you got through that pretty easily, I thought. Yeah, that's like a media conference. Would have been shorter if you'd been talking just interest rates. So anyway, so it was good. I did like the fact that the ABC was overrepresented, so thank you very much for that as well. That was a fabulous thing. Well, I had a fair go at the start, that's all right. It's just one of me. There was about 80 of you in the room. That's the way it goes. Anyway, so Guy, can I just say thank you very much. It's um, one of those things that I think in media that it, it always comes down to respect and to a certain extent, honesty, the relationships that do work between organisations and individuals. To have the ability in this environment to have Guy DeBell here close up, as it were, is really a sign of his trust and respect in the group who is in the room. And I kind of guess our trust and respect in him uh, in the way in which we've dealt with him as well. So it is important that the Reserve Bank is really that vehicle that goes beyond government, goes through government that it is seen to be independent, that it is seen to be respected. And I think that's one of the, the absolute keys and hallmarks of the organisation. A small tip in social media, just a small tip for you as well. I've given you one small tip, I'll give you a second one. The Australian Bureau of Statistics has dramatically improved its output on social media. Dramatically improved it. The little ideas and things that they're coming up with which are related to current events, I don't know whether any of you noticed this, are fantastic right now, little insights into Australia. And as I say, from an organisation that was really bad at this sort of stuff just two years ago, they have done a fabulous job in improving not only the messaging, but the way in which they interpret the messaging as well. 
And so, as I say, I think that might be just a, a second small tip for you today. Guy Bell, I appreciate your time here today, as if we all do. And can you please, well, acclaim him in the way in which you should be. Many thanks. Thank you.